Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, studying supernovae and the stars from which they came. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. And I'm Melana Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study planetary systems. You're listening to episode 21, The Stargazing Automata, part 1. This episode is the first in a series we'll be doing covering research that lies at the intersection of astrophysics and machine learning. This is a field that's exploded over the past decade, and although new methods are being developed all the time, we'll spend each of the upcoming episodes focused on one algorithm, or a set of algorithms, that has revolutionized our field. Today's episode? Artificial Neural Networks, or Neural Nets for short. I'm the host for today's episode, so Will and Milena have brought two exciting studies that they're going to tell us about. But let's take a step back first and answer a few more basic questions. What is machine learning? An application of computer algorithms in which systems learn and improve through experience by building a mathematical model. So this is in contrast to, for example, a typical Python program where you have the code do exactly what it's told and you need to add new lines to the code for every new application. You said the algorithms learn. What are the different ways that an algorithm can learn? There are two primary types of machine learning, where the first is supervised learning and there's also unsupervised learning, and you can have kind of mixes of the two. Mixes of the two, that would mean semi-supervised learning? Yeah. That sounds like elementary school to me. <laughs> Mine was unsupervised, it's like I think. Recess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean to have supervised or unsupervised learning? What do those terms refer to? Well, supervised learning is when you give the machine a stack of inputs and a known stack of outputs, and it has to figure out how they're connected. That's called training. And once you train your machine on some data that's similar to but not the same as your actual data, then you can give it the real data inputs and it'll determine the outputs using the internal workings that it's already created. This is like the grad school phase of the uh, neural net, right? Providing it the training data and having some kind of supervision over what kind of output it'll produce. And then after grad school, we produce our own data using our own internal training. That's the hope, right? <laughs> I guess we'll find out. <laughs> well, just like grad school, you don't want to train your machine wrong. Because if you train it too close to the real data, that is, if you train a grad student on only one specific thing, then the student will do that thing great for life, but never be able to branch out. Nice. <laughs> so you want to train your computer on a large range of data, but you don't want to just give it noise because then it will uh, overfit the noise and, and see a signal where there isn't one. Training is actually really hard. Right. And so when you want to decide which of your models you want to use and how to optimize it, you need to have a test set. And that can kind of help to make sure that you're not just overfitting to little noise details and uh, using a separate data set that you have labels for, but that you didn't use in your training is important for that. That's a great point. I want to tie in the idea of a neural network, because that's, of course, what this episode is about. 
So what is a neural network and where does the idea come from? Neural networks are a type of machine learning algorithm that was inspired by the human brain. So they're composed of these fundamental units called neurons that are set up in layers, and each layer is composed of one or more neurons. And if you have more of these layers, then these are called deep networks. If you have three or more layers, and if you don't, then it is a much more basic network. So for example, the most basic possible neural network is called a perceptron, and it just has one layer. Spooky perceptron. <laughs> yeah, it's like a transformer. <laughs> <laughs> what do the neurons do onto the data? Well, a neuron connects from the previous layer to the next layer, and it doesn't only connect to one neuron, it can connect to many neurons in the previous layer and the next layer. Now, from a layer, it'll send data to the next layer, that's called the input to the incoming layer. The input is then modified with a weight. The weight determines how multiple inputs compare for a single neuron receiving multiple inputs. And the neuron itself applies a bias to the data that it, it weights, and then it sticks that whole mess into an activation function. And what is an activation function? Well, the activation function tells the neuron based on its input that it's been weighted and biased what to output. And sometimes you don't want your neuron to output anything at all. For instance, a very common activation function tells you that if after the weight and bias, the answer is less than zero in the activation function, output nothing. Because you don't want your neuron to fire, that data is too insignificant to matter. <laughs> I think it's interesting that, I don't know, I feel like in astronomy, the word bias is kind of like a dirty word, right? We're trying to make our, <laughs> our estimates as unbiased as possible. But it sounds like in a neural network, biases are a fundamental component, right? You want to be able to develop biases onto your input data that gets you closer to the output. A bias is basically a y-intercept, and a weight is basically a slope. They're not so yeah. dirty. It's just the computer <laughs> trying to do a linear regression. Fair enough. Can neurons only go in a single direction from input to output? Well, it depends. On? Whether or not you tell it to go backwards. <laughs> there are types of networks where you can decide to tell them to talk to themselves, sort of where their outputs can then become the inputs to the same layer. And those are called recurrent neural networks. But you have to tell your network to do whatever it is that you want it to do. So you can set up your model however you decide to go forwards, to kind of loop around. I find these neural networks so complicated. I couldn't imagine working with one of the loop-de-loop -loop ones where it just goes round and round. You don't even know what layers you're dealing with. Yeah, but they're really useful for certain applications. So, for example, if you are using like a one of those algorithms that is trying to decide what the next word in your text is likely hmm. to be. Like if you're texting someone and it gives you example words. Oh, yeah. Recurrent neural networks are really useful for that because they have information from previous trainings. And so they are able to kind of sequence together information nicely for that type of application. Wow. That makes complete sense, too, because I would think that if you add a word at the end of a phrase that then completely changes the context of the previous words that you already added, then that would require a change in the weights that you put on the previous words. Right. Very neat. That's a great fact. Very interesting. Yeah. So it's called recurrent if there's this kind of loop-de-loop -loop reinforcement of previous layers. What's it called if, if the inputs go straight to the output in a single direction? It's called a feed-forward network. And one of the very simple types of feed-forward networks is a multi-layer perceptron. Melena said the most simple network is one perceptron. If you do multiple layers, you have a deep learning network. That's kind of the default 
uh, type of, of deep neural network. Okay, so now we're adding a few terms to our <laughs> belt, right? We have feed-forward networks, recurrent networks, deep learning networks. Are there other kind of neural networks in play that we should discuss? There's one more that is going to come up in my astrobite that would probably be useful to bring up here for that context, and it's called a convolutional neural network. This is also known as a CNN. So CNNs are types of multi-layer perceptrons, and they're typically used to detect features and images and what makes a CNN a CNN is just that it has a layer within the network that performs a mathematical operation called a convolution. So it basically just takes your image or whatever function you decide to put in, and it is trying to figure out what the general features are in your image or other input using a convolution. Got it. Well, I'm excited to hear about it in the context of your astrobite. Why don't we start off... First, though, with Wills, what astrophysical phenomenon are you going to be exploring today? The astrobite I read is called Never Underestimate a Droid, Deep Learning for Turbulence. And of course, it's about turbulence, but the physical implication for this research is neutron star collision. When a neutron star collides with another one, it's extremely hot. You get these gamma ray jets that are emitted and they ionize basically everything in their path. So now you have these beams of ionized charged particles, and neutron stars also have incredibly strong magnetic fields. So you have these jets of charged particles interacting with each other in magnetic fields, and when you have two beams of jets pointed at one another, you get what's called a Kelvin-Helmholtz instability, and that creates turbulence. This sounds like a really complicated system. <laughs> um, it sure is. And on top of that, you have turbulence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the crux of the whole thing. Everything up until this point is just fun. Turbulence is where it gets interesting. Jeez. So just to clarify, you're looking at these plasma tails as opposed to the actual merger event itself. It's sort of the Correct. material surrounding it. Okay. That's right. That's not the only place you get a Kelvin-Helmholtz instability, but it is one place. Sounds like it hopefully simplifies a lot of the modeling that's done. What does? The fact that you don't have to simulate the merger itself. You're just looking at creating a physically realistic stream of particles and simulating that. Oh, it's still a disaster to simulate. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so now you may be wondering, what even is turbulence? It's a phrase you hear. It's actually a phenomenon you're familiar with. If you turn on the faucet a little bit, the water will come out clear. And that we call that laminar flow. It's very predictive. If you turn the faucet on all the way, the aerator will make it bubble, will make it opaque, and will make it kind of foamy. So the result is, is turbulent flow, and that's what you identify. And it's very hard to deal with turbulent flow in a physical situation because we don't have a solution for it. So how do you model it accurately? This is the major problem. Turbulence comes out of the equations that describe fluid and plasma flow. We know that it does. We know turbulence exists. The problem is turbulence comes from small scale terms, and those are really hard to model. It takes so much computational power. The terms in the fluid and plasma equations go from linear, meaning they're just multiplied by time or space, up to something like 12th order in time or space when you get down to certain approximations. That's nearly impossible to deal with. So most of the time they say, those are going to damp away. Let's linearize everything. Let's make these equations behave as if they're linear, and then we'll see how the behavior works. 
and for large scale, that works pretty well. But for small scales? Well, for small scale, it fails pretty spectacularly because turbulence emerges. And if you're not capturing the turbulence, you could miss the important behavior of the whole system, which in this case, in those beams of energetic particles, you will miss the behavior that actually creates the infall of the neutron stars in this sort of bath of energetic particles. You'll miss the important features hmm. of that. This is really interesting because it kind of seems like exactly the type of system that you would want to use machine learning to understand since it's like this crazy, complicated, nonlinear system that you can't explain analytically anyways and you need to try to figure out some way to characterize it. So I assume that the authors do use machine learning in some way based on this episode title. <laughs> yeah, you got that right. <laughs> uh, can you tell us how they try to tackle this problem? Sure. I will disagree with you, though. I think this is an area where you'd prefer not to use machine learning if you can avoid it. Because if you could come up with an analytic closed form solution to turbulence, you would help everybody. We would all like to know. Okay, that's always true. That's though. true of every field, right? <laughs> well, if you could explain it well, from first principles, you would. <laughs> but you can't, so you don't. It's like, why don't, why don't we just come up with an analytical solution to the three-body problem? Just it would be so easy. For fun. <laughs> <laughs> but that's proven non-solvable. Yeah. Has turbulence... This one isn't. Oh, okay. So we don't actually know whether there's a solution. Correct. Okay. The, the yeah. problem is you have to make some simplifying assumptions. Can you make some that enable an analytic solution? No one knows that answer. It's a very complicated problem. And I'd imagine even if you had a perfect analytic solution for turbulence, it would be so computationally expensive to use it well, that you'd never be able to get the simulation right. done. Yeah, that's probably true. But anyway, moving on. So... <laughs> The best way of doing turbulence is called direct numerical simulations. You put in all the equations with all their terms, you use the most powerful supercomputers, and you wait a million years. That's it. And you're done. <laughs> Great. So, so sadly, that doesn't really get you very far. I think a million years is generous. Uh, this is intense, intense computational limitations. So what you have to do is you have to use a large scale simulation. It's called an eddy simulation to capture the laminar flow, the big behavior. Then you zoom into a subgrid scale. You capture turbulence in the smallest possible scale, and then you got to go back and forth and connect them somehow. It's very complicated. You know what this reminds me of is that poem about turbulence. Have y'all heard that before? Mm-hmm. Malena? What? Is this just a thing? No. <laughs> <laughs> this is what it's, you do in your free time <laughs> <laughs> it's a poem from lewis fry richardson in uh, 1922 i have the poem right here i can read it go for it he says big worlds have little worlds which feed on their velocity and little worlds have lesser worlds and so on to viscosity this sounds really familiar maybe yeah, i've yeah, seen it I on twitter or something i don't know it's frequently tossed around but <laughs> In, in any case, uh, I think the connecting of the large and the small scales sounds like such a fundamental aspect of turbulence, right? Getting that right. Sure is. So, Will, how do they connect the two scales? Well, that's the, that's the challenge, is you have to solve the subgrid scale in a way that's accurate, preserving this, this simulation. Otherwise, things start to fall apart. But if you can, then you can take those results and you modify the large scale based on the results of the small one. Now, the way that they've been doing this for a long time in the subgrid scale is something called the gradient approximation. And it's a way of doing a Taylor expansion, a mathematical operation to simplify the, the most 
tiny terms in the plasma equations to work on the small scale. So you ignore everything big. You ignore, you know, things like gravity. You ignored gravity a long time ago, but things like gravity. And you focus <laughs> on, on the tiniest, tiniest possible areas, which amount to viscosity being very important. And then the problem is the gradient solution has a lot of errors and it's still very computationally intensive. So it doesn't do as well compared to the direct simulation. And they've known this and that's where the machine learning comes in. You mentioned that viscosity is really important, but these are like the tails of the mergers, right? So are they very viscous? Well, it's actually not the viscosity that matters. It's something called the Reynolds number. The Reynolds number is a ratio of inertial forces to viscous forces, okay? So a low Reynolds number is like honey. It's, it's always going to flow laminar. It's very hard to stir honey and get turbulence. A high Reynolds number is like ocean waves. It's very easy to, to churn up the waves and make turbulence. That is the white caps. The thing is that Reynolds number changes with temperature, changes with magnetic fields, changes with other conditions. So it's not like viscosity where it's the same for a material. So even though there's very, very low density in these plasma jets, the situation with the magnetic fields is such that they have very high Reynolds numbers. So they're very prone to turbulence. Okay, that makes sense. And also rapidly evolving temporally and spatially, right? Reynolds numbers. Right. Yep, 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 exactly. All true. So how do we use neural networks to resolve this problem? Neural networks solve the subgrid scale model better. That's their hypothesis. And the way that they did it is they did a full-on direct numerical simulation to a very, very small subset of things. So that way it didn't take forever. It just took a long time. <laughs> then they compared that to doing the combination of the large eddy simulation with the old gradient approximation and the large eddy simulation with the new machine learning approach, a deep learning, in fact, where they trained it on a whole lot of, of known data. And then this was their actual test. And they compared the gradient model to the machine learning model to the full-on direct numerical simulation. And did they match up nicely? They matched up really nicely. The gradient model had some problems. The machine learning did much, much better. Interesting. Yeah. So it's a perfect result, right? We should all start using neural networks in all of our research on turbulence? Well, I wouldn't go that far. There are some caveats. The obvious caveat with any machine learning or deep learning is you don't know how to interpret the hidden layers. The weights and biases in the inside, they don't actually mean anything to us. It's hard to open it up and understand it. So they call it a black box. It's, it, it doesn't have to be a black box. We're working to try to make it more translucent so we can actually see what's inside. The other thing that's hard about deep networks is the training data. There's always the potential that you bias the network as we talked about in the beginning. And these authors do admit this is the first instance of using machine learning solving this model for a Kelvin-Helmholtz instability. It is a proof of concept. Maybe it'll work better and there's some good early signs, but it is going to take a lot of follow-up for us to say that machine learning, deep learning does the things we need to do to be able to use it writ large on this area of research. Right. So, for example, if you'd have a different type of physical scenario that gave rise to a jet similar to one you have here, it's hard to say exactly whether the neural net will perform as well on that data set as it mm -hmm. did on this data set. Exactly. That's a great point. Right. And they have to calibrate that. Yeah. Interesting. 
Well, thanks for bringing the astrobite to us, Will. Yeah, thank you. You're very welcome. Fascinating to learn about. Do you want a turbulence fact? Always. Please. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Are the turbulence facts going to replace the dust facts, or is it just compounding? Are we going to get a mix now? Um, I think we've moved on from dust facts. Aw, sad. Or, or could we get turbulent <laughs> dust facts? Turbulent, uh, I have a turbulent sand fact. Okay, that's oh, pretty Oh, I'd love to hear it. That counts. <laughs> okay, well, you guys have been to the beach, I hope. And have you ever noticed that the beach is often surrounded by these sorts of wooden picket fences? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they put them at the edge of the beach next to the parking lot or next to sand dunes. I never knew what they were there for. I figured it was just for appearances. (laughs) To keep out the riffraff. (laughs) What actually happens is if the wind picks up sand and blows over those fences, the fences introduce turbulence into the wind. And then the wind drops the sand because it only can carry sand if it's flowing laminarly. Hmm. So then the sand doesn't blow onto the parking lot or out of the beach. Really? Interesting. Yeah. So they're there for a purpose. They're called sand fences. Huh. That's wild. How did beaches keep their sand before this? Or I guess they just had a lot of sand, but there were no parking lots, so it didn't matter. Yeah, that's the primary goal is just to keep it out (laughs) of the parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, thanks for the turbulence fact, Will. Yeah, you're very welcome. (laughs) Yeah, that's really cool. Turbulence sand facts from here on out, oh, all right? Gosh. This might be the only <laughs> one in existence. <laughs> okay, so it's time in the episode for our Astro Soundscape of the Fortnite for Astronomy and Machine Learning. Ooh. Is everyone ready? Oh, so ready. <laughs> all right. What did I just play? You know, I'm not sure what I was expecting, but I don't think that was it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it sounded like a song. I couldn't tell if it was just because of Zoom, but it sounded kind of low quality. So maybe it was an old song from a long time ago. <laughs> All right. What do you think, Will? Um, I didn't particularly care for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, like three out of ten. <laughs> I hope you didn't write it. I did not write the song. Okay, yeah, I didn't like it. (laughs) So these are the research results to come out of the San Francisco Research Lab OpenAI. Okay, so this is a software they've developed called Jupebox, which is a deep neural network that they can train on songs of different artists and use them to develop new songs in the style of that artist. Hmm. Oh, that's so funny. So what I just played was a song entirely developed by Jukebox in the style of Katy Perry. Oh, well, that makes sense. I don't really like Katy Perry. (laughs) (laughs) Are there actual lyrics to this song? Because I was trying to figure out if it was in English and I couldn't even tell. (laughs) So it is in English. I think it uses some combination of a blend of all of the different Katy Perry songs that they threw in hmm. and tries to find some, like you said, underlying features in the songs to create a new song. Uh, but because of that, the whole thing can sound just kind of garbled when they introduce new lyrics for the neural net to quote unquote sing. That's so cool. I guess Katy Perry needs to enunciate a little bit better for the neural network. <laughs> yeah. Kate, come on, Katy Perry. <laughs> can you do any song? 
they can do any any style, but they've come out with uh, songs that have been developed by Jukebox in the style of Katy Perry, Frank Sinatra. Why couldn't you have played that one? And, <laughs> and Ella Fitzgerald. I think the one is more interesting for Katy Perry. It actually sounds a lot better for the Frank Sinatra one, so I think... You probably would have said that's just a Frank Sinatra song, but no, I know his whole catalog. Please, <laughs> do you? Okay, no, that's that's not true. I don't know all of it, but I listen to more Sinatra than I care to admit. <laughs> well, that's the space sound I have for you all today. It's more of a machine learning neural net sound, but I thought it was interesting, nevertheless. That is very appropriate for this episode. Very relevant. Should just start bringing Katy Perry songs. Let that not be a precedent. (laughs) As soon as she writes a song about binary neutron star mergers, then we'll bring it on the episode. (laughs) Right, right. I I think I forgot to include the one about turbulence. (laughs) All right, Melina, I think it's time for your astrobite. What do you have for us today? My astrobite is also about neural networks. Big surprise. (laughs) (laughs) And it's called Searching for FRBs Using Neural Networks and Machine Learning by Haley Wall. The work described by this astrobite is based on a paper by Agarwal et al. 2020. And so the title is a little bit self-explanatory. The authors study data sets from specifically radio telescopes to search for the signals of fast radio bursts, or FRBs, using neural networks. So it's not fast-running badgers? That's not what that acronym means? No, no. (laughs) I thought we decided it was Federal Reserve Board. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when I tried to look up fun facts for this, like just FRBs in general, found a lot of fun facts about the Federal Reserve Board. Apparently there are like websites dedicated to it. Well, what is an FRB for real? So FRBs, or fast radio bursts, are short radio pulses of a high-energy astrophysical origin, where when I say short, I mean a fraction of a millisecond to a few milliseconds. Astrophysical origin, meaning we don't know where they come from? (laughs) Yeah, that's sort of like code for we have no idea. Yeah, okay. (laughs) It's not totally true that we have no idea, but... FRBs were only discovered pretty recently. The first one was discovered in 2007 by Professor Duncan Lorimer, and they're only about 60 known, and they're not super well understood so far. Yeah, that seems like an understatement if we don't even know where they're coming from or what causes them. Right. And, I mean, there are a couple of theories. Uh, They seem to be coming from somewhere outside of the galaxy, so that tells you something. At least one of them has repeated periodically, and some of them have repeated not periodically, just kind of erratically. Weird. Some of them just don't repeat, so that's a little confusing. Melina, how do we know that they're coming from outside of the galaxy? We know that because they have a high dispersion measure, and the dispersion measure is a constant that relates the frequency of light to the extra amount of time that it takes to reach the observer when it's traveling through a medium. So specifically here, it's telling you how many electrons are between us and the object that's been observed. And so if you have lots of electrons in the way, then it's probably not from our galaxy. Let me ask you, though, what causes something to be dispersed? Like, what is actually getting spread out? So I think you can make the analogy of it being a little bit like diffraction of light in a prism. So based on the frequency of the light, you have a splitting because the different frequencies of light travel at different speeds in that medium, Mm -hmm. right? Based on the index of refraction of that medium. And I think it's similar, but in plasma, you have a different mathematical relationship explaining how the frequencies should be dispersed as they travel through that medium. Right. So the the high frequency would get there faster than the low frequency? Exactly. But that assumes it all emits at a lot of frequencies at the same time. 
Yeah, so I think that any signal from these objects is sort of at some range of frequencies. It's not just like at one very discrete frequency. And so different frequencies get dispersed different amounts. So this is a number that tells you that relationship, but if you actually look at the signal, it's sort of like a line in frequency, time, space. Okay, so going through a lot of electrons means it has to come from outside the galaxy because there just aren't enough electrons in our galaxy to disperse it. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Very neat. Melina, you said we have some indication of the kind of astrophysical scenario that gives rise to FRBs. Could you name a couple of them or maybe the leading one? Uh, Yeah, there are a couple of candidates. And so we don't actually know for sure which of these is true, but... Uh, in this astrobite, they specifically mention neutron star mergers, collapse of neutron stars, or synchrotron maser emission, which Whoa. is obviously from shock. <laughs> yeah, so that synchrotron maser emission is just a fancy word for shock waves that are slowing down, probably associated with magnetars. Where magnetars are another fancy word. There's a lot of jargon in this field. Uh, it's actually thought that magnetars are probably at least somehow associated with FRBs. And magnetars are the most powerful magnetic objects in the universe. They're neutron stars that have super strong magnetic fields that are about a trillion times stronger than that of the Earth. A trillion times stronger than that of the Earth. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to even imagine in your mind exactly how strong that is, right. but they're very powerful magnetic fields. You couldn't survive in that strong of a field, right? It would rip your atoms yeah. apart. Yeah, it sounds very dangerous. I don't think they're really looking for life in magnetars. <laughs> Were you thinking of a vacation destination, Will? <laughs> I'm so desperate for a vacation. <laughs> I just want to get away. I'll go anywhere. Even a magnetar, it's fine. Even a magnetar. <laughs> you just take apart my atoms, I don't care. I need a week off. So where does the machine learning come into all this? Right, so in order to actually identify these FRB signals, we need to use some sort of algorithm. And specifically the way that we detect these FRBs is we are looking for these radio signals that are observed by radio telescopes on Earth. But the problem there is that there is a lot of noise when you look in radio frequencies, and in particular there are a lot of noise sources, both astrophysical and created by humans, called radio frequency interference that will potentially be confused with these FRB signals. Just as a tiny little aside, when I I was first learning about FRBs, I learned that for a while there was an argument about whether they were really extragalactic in origin because there was another set of signals that very closely matched the FRB signals in the data that seemed to be terrestrial in origin and, and a noise artifact. And it was later figured out that the noise artifact that was terrestrial that was contaminating the uh, data sets that they were looking at was the opening of the microwave at the observatory where they were gathering the data. <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> of course, it's integral to your astrophysics to know how to separate out your noise from your true signals. Right. And there's a lot of radio noise. There's There are radios. There are microwaves, like you mentioned. There are cell phones. There's lightning. There are solar flares. So there's tons of stuff that they need to try to differentiate from these actual FRB signals. And we can use neural nets to do this. Yeah, and so that's where the neural nets come in, trying to actually distinguish which is which in these huge data sets. That's a great job for a machine. 
Yeah, I mean, it's something that, you know, it's not so pleasant for humans to do to just sort of sift through tons and tons of plots and just say, this one looks real, this one doesn't look real. Most of them are not going to look real. There are thousands of false positives every day. And so it's just kind of a pain to go through this without having something more automated that might also actually be more accurate than a human just kind of looking through, especially if they're exhausted after the past thousand <laughs> so you said might actually be more accurate than a human. Now I'm curious to know, how did the neural net do on this data? The neural nets did really well. So they were trained on data from the Green Bank Observatory. And in West Virginia, right? Yes, in West Virginia. So West Virginia is a really big radio astronomy place in general. And so, uh, yeah, they use the data from the Green Bank Telescope that's continuously just observing and looking for these FRB signals. And they use that as the training set and had to inject a bunch of FRB signals in because, again, there are only about 60 that have ever been observed. So they needed a bit of a larger training set. There are tons of false positives that they can also use to train their model to get rid of the false positives properly. Right, teach what's bad. Yeah, so it needs to know not only what the good signals look like, but also what the bad signals look like. What about the bat signal? Does it need to know what that looks like? <laughs> you know, it depends on what you're looking for, but potentially. <laughs> Future work, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's for the discussion <laughs> section. <laughs> Uh, so they trained 11 different models. So these are just convolutional neural networks that they had slightly different setups for, you know, different numbers of layers, different types of layers. And they just tried them all out of the box and saw how well each of them worked. And all of them worked really well. So the accuracy was over 99.5% across all of them. And most of these models correctly classified every single FRB event that was in the data set. Which is pretty impressive because the RFI signals look not that different. So if you actually look at the comparison of the two, they look pretty similar if you just look by eye at their paper. And so it's pretty cool that they were able to distinguish it so quickly. So you're saying that potentially a human would have an accuracy of maybe even less than the uh, neural net if a human were trying to classify these types of sources. Yeah, I think especially a tired human, because, <laughs> you know, if you have to look at so many of them, uh, then it's just sort of a pain. And even if these neural nets end up saying that some of the signals are FRBs that are not, then a human can go ahead and just do the very last vetting step. And they don't have to go through the thousands, they just have to look through some smaller subset. Makes sense to me. Yeah. So as long as they're able to actually identify the right ones, even if they identify some of the wrong ones, mm -hmm. it's less of a big deal. Where does the research go from here, Melina? Well, I guess we need to see more of these events. So that <laughs> is sort of a big step for FRBs in general, getting more observations and actually trying to figure out what these objects are, why some of them are repeating and some of them aren't. This is a an open source code that's available for anybody. And so they now have it just available to be used on any telescope and it can be used in the moment. So as they are collecting data, they can just continuously run this algorithm and vet the data. So I think it was mostly developed as a tool for the Green Bank Observatory, but it can really be used for any data set. And really now it's just a matter of getting more data. Very cool. Thanks for bringing that astrobite to us. Yeah, thanks. Now I think it's time to move on to our one-sentence summary, so why don't we start off with you, Will? Since we don't have a theory of turbulence, we have to simulate it. 
which might be easier now by using deep learning in combination with eddy simulations. Elena, what do you have? Neural networks are a promising new way to rapidly identify FRB signals and distinguish them from radio frequency interference in order to get a better grasp on more generally what FRBs are. Nice. And now it's time to move on to our discussion. I want to start off with this idea. I found that neural networks were first proposed in 1944. Wow by Warren McCulloch and Walter Pitts, two University of Chicago researchers. Why do y'all think it took 70 years for the idea to really catch on and, and be useful in astrophysics? I mean, back then it might have been really expensive, right? Like computers weren't even very commonplace. And so maybe they just didn't want to spend all the money. And in terms of price, it might have actually just been more efficient to have people do everything instead. That's a good point. There also weren't a lot of other successful applications that were proven at that time, I imagine. Whereas now it's like so commonplace to see Google categorizing different types of dogs versus something else that looks vaguely like a dog but mm. is not a dog. You know, things like that where it's just so common in our lives now. That's my theory is they simply didn't have anything to use it for because machine learning nowadays is most often used when the uh, computational power required is incredibly high or when your data set is enormous and parsing it is too hard for a human um, because you don't even know where to start. You can't even visualize it. So those problems didn't exist. That's a great point. Yeah, I also read from a review article like a couple decades back people arguing very pessimistically. There was a report saying that machine learning has not lived up to the hype at all, and it will probably never catch on because the data sets required to implement them successfully are prohibitively large. Mm. Yeah, and I think back in the, you said the 1940s, right? Mm -hmm. They were still doing a lot of astronomy with photographic plates, right? Which I'm not really for sure. for decades hence. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that neural nets would work very well with photographic plates, or you would still need to have like manual labor somehow to move the plates in and out of whatever view. And so it might be more difficult. Whereas now everything's so digital, it's much easier to just load in your data instead. <laughs> That's very true. I, yeah, I've also heard commonly cited the development of the GPU from NVIDIA that really caused neural nets to explode on the scene because of how well it's able to do many, many very small operations at one time like you would do in a neural net. Interesting. We've talked a little bit about the black box of neural networks. I'm wondering how you might make that box more translucent, how you might see what's going on in the neural network, how you might learn about what you're training to better understand your output. Yeah, it's a good point. If I were using a neural network in my own research, I would probably try to develop uh, multiple training sets and multiple test sets so I could see how much I screw up training my network and have a, a bunch of fail-safes kind of controlled to tests in my little sandbox to experiment with. I've never actually used one. I've never actually implemented it. So I would have to get familiar with that enough to convince myself that I'm not going to introduce bias because that's my worst fear is that I, I go through all this data analysis. I'm very excited about a procedure. It works. It gives me exactly what I want. And then it turns out somewhere along the way, I introduced a systematic error that propagated through and became my signal. Yeah, I haven't 
really use neural networks too much just yet. It's something that I plan to use in the immediate future, but haven't so much yet. But when you're doing any sort of supervised learning, you can always use different test and train sets. And so you can break it up and say, this two thirds is going to be the train set, and then this one third will be the test set, and then alternate which third you use. I guess the ideal would be if you were able to train on all of the data except for one frame and cycle around and test that for every single frame. Uh, but depending on how many frames you have, that can be super computationally expensive because you might have to train hundreds of models just to make sure that they all work well on the last one that's left out. And so you can try to like make sure that your model will perform well using methods like that, but it still doesn't necessarily give you a good intuition. So that's called cross-validation, and it's a great way that a mm -hmm. lot of people help prevent their neural network from overfitting your data for that particular scenario. Very cool. Yeah, so it helps to prevent overfitting, but it doesn't really give a physical intuition. I'm not sure how useful it would be to look at the feature maps, but that would be my initial instinct to try to actually see what is coming out specifically for convolutional neural networks. I'm not really sure if there's an analog for like a one-dimensional neural network where you're not looking at images. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay, I, I have one more question. And of course, it's the metaphysical question that I've saved for last. So I want to pick each of your brains just a little bit. Artificial intelligence is a term that's tossed around very mm -hmm. frequently. And I think it's a pretty nebulous concept compared to a term like machine learning or a neural network, right? So when I've been digging around looking for information about artificial intelligence, I found this phenomenon called the AI effect. Okay. And this thing, the AI effect, occurs when onlookers discount the behavior of an artificial intelligence program by arguing that it is not real intelligence or real thinking. I think this comes up a lot in neural networks because, of course, we tend to anthropomorphize these machines as they do things that are more and more human-like and kind of carve further and further into this domain that we think is reserved exclusively for intelligent creatures. So do each of you think that a neural network or a machine is currently capable of thinking, of intelligence? Great question. Wow. I'm not really sure what you mean by intelligence. And I think that that probably determines what the answer would be. Like, I would not want to discount that a machine can quote unquote think in the same way that humans can, given that we don't fully understand the brain yet. And so because we don't really know how the brain works, it's kind of hard to know whether a machine would ever be able to operate the same way that the brain does, because we don't fully understand that system. And so it's you can't really say a machine can't do the same thing if you don't understand the first system in the first place. So maybe someday if a machine gets complicated enough like the brain, it might be able to perform in a similar way. But again, it depends on what you mean by intelligence. And that starts to get into mm -hmm. philosophy of, you know, are the brain and the mind separate entities? I don't know, ask, ask Descartes and you'll get a different answer from if you ask more recent philosophers. <laughs> I tried to get him on the show, but he said he was busy this week. Yeah. What do you think, Will? Well, it, there's no doubt that we have and have had machines smarter than people at many different tasks. Um, we have machines smarter at choosing music we'll like than we do. We have machines smarter at filling out our emails for us than we are. 
those are just trained to do a specific task. And that's what we currently have. Our current AI limitations are they're, they're trained to do a job, some subset of a job. You can't train a neural network to identify pictures of cats and then have it drive a car. It, it, it just can't do it. You can train a computer to drive a car and have it do it better than a human ever could. If the road were only filled with driverless cars, it'd be easy. It'd be a cinch to make that happen. They'd all communicate and get it done. The problem is the humans, which underscores my point, which is the brain is a disaster. <laughs> it's a mess. It is 3 billion years of evolution, and many biologists think it never should have existed, that the brain is an accident of evolution. It is not something that should normally be selected for. And so do we even want to create the brain? Do we even, you know, why would we choose this system if we can come up with a better one? So who's to say that, you know, you get enough connections in a certain place, the computer will create a smarter way of thinking. But to my knowledge, we don't have a network, an artificial network yet with as many connections as the human brain. That's where thinking and lies. Thinking is connections. And once we get enough connections, yeah, I think we might just have it. That's a really good point because we sort of optimize our brains to do a huge number of tasks. And that is why there are some of these shortcomings where we aren't necessarily perfect drivers because that is not what we do all of the time. We do many things that are not driving. And so we aren't able to be fully optimized for each individual task. So it's, it's a really interesting point that we might not even want to create something like the brain because it might actually be less good at each individual task than if you had it do more specific tasks. This is making me feel very existential about my PhD. <laughs> a very specific subset of abilities, but maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's the point. No, it's a great point. So you're both saying that potentially the real intelligence of the human brain lies in its flexibility to do a wide array of tasks and activities. No. Milena, I disagree that we're not good drivers because we don't drive enough. We're not good drivers because we were never programmed to drive. And we are distracted easily and often. We do not anticipate risk properly. Mm -hmm. We don't have a perception for distance and speed in a certain way. We don't have reaction time that's fast enough. Some animals have much higher reaction time. They are selected for that. It's part of their survival mechanism. It's not part of ours. Our brain is adaptable, right? Is it the best thing about the brain? Is it what we do best? I don't know. I I find yeah. it hard. No, I see. I see what you mean, where it's like even if you tried to train a human to only drive ever they still need to eat and sleep and if you don't give the human those things then they will not be able to drive properly whereas a machine would potentially well i guess it might need i don't know solar energy or something to keep operating oil and human hearts <laughs> dark <laughs> It's also interesting, it reminds me a little bit about the conversation of looking for extraterrestrial life, because when looking, we only really have one set of examples, right? Life on Earth. And so when, when looking out, it could be completely different, but we go on what we know. And similarly, when we're trying to program intelligence into a machine, it's all modeled around the human brain. Is that quote-unquote intelligence? Is that the ideal for intelligence? Who's to say? But... It's, it's the best example that a lot of people have been able to come up with. So they try and get as close to that as they can. It's a great idea because if you have something that works in a task, develop, emulate it, and then develop a better one. Hundreds of years of innovative painters and inventors and musicians will tell you they all start by emulating the greats and then they make it their own. That's how you learn. So 
Sure, if the brain is, is a great starting point, let's start with it. We've already beaten the brain in narrow tasks. I think a lot of people would like to create a better brain that does all the things we do, but much better. And other people yet would rather create something different. Is there anything that a neural network could someday be able to do that a human being brain never could? Yes. Yes. I mean, neural networks can model chaos. We can't do that. Like, we don't know what's going to happen in a chaotic system. Or in, like, even turbulence. If you asked me what was going to happen in this simulation, I have no clue. I would have to have a machine do it. I can't just figure it out on my own. Or maybe I could. It would take a very long time. Uh, And I wouldn't be able to do it analytically. It would just be, like, very slowly working out all of the numerical solutions. So... I think we've already gotten to the point where machines can definitely surpass us in certain tasks. Okay, what about vice versa? What can a human being do that machines never will? I think what I notice in my own life is I violate my own logic and consistency for no reason. This is an evolutionary thing in some ways where... Some people call it a gut reaction or an impulse. Um, Somewhere along the way in evolution, it became important for us to make a decision among things that are equal without needing to choose one is better than the other or having a reason one is better than the other. You just pick one. Um, So we're good at doing that. Sometimes we do it where things aren't equal and we don't understand it. And then people say, I don't understand my brain or I don't know why I do these things. Um, I don't think a computer would do that. Maybe I'm wrong. But there could also be internal processing going on in your subconscious that you're never made aware of, but that's not to say that it's not like purely mechanical input and output leading you to a certain conclusion. You're just not able to interpret it. Right, right. Maybe maybe that's how it... Yeah, maybe that's how it would be different. The machine doesn't have a subconscious. Everything is the same level of consciousness, but weighted differently. Hmm. Hmm. Definitely something to ponder on further. You bet. With that, I think we'll conclude episode 21 of Astro Soundbites, The Stargazing Automata, Part 1. If you want to read the two Astrobytes we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. How are we doing? Please write to us at astrosoundbites.com and share your thoughts. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and on SoundCloud and on that website, Astro Soundbites. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Mm-hmm.